0: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, a podcast dedicating to speaking with authors about their most recently published works. My name is Matthew Long, and I'll be your host for this session of the New Books Network Islamic Studies section. The Quran and the Aramaic Gospel Traditions, written by Imran El-Badawi, professor and director of the Arab Studies Program at the University of Houston, is a recent addition to the field of research on the Quran and Aramaic and Syriac biblical texts. Professor Abadawi asserts that the Qur'an is a product of an environment steeped in the Aramaic Gospel traditions, not a borrowing from the Aramaic Gospel tradition, but rather the Qur'an is a rearticulation of elements from that tradition for an Arab audience. He introduces and examines this context in his second chapter, and then proceeds to compare passages of the Qur'an and passages of the Aramaic Gospel in the subsequent four chapters. These comparisons are organized according to four primary themes, Prophets, clergy, the divine, and the apocalypse. Each chapter contains numerous images constituting the larger theme at work. For example, in the chapter Divine Judgment and the Apocalypse, images of paradise and hell taken from the Gospel traditions are compared to the Quranic casting of these same images. Moreover, Professor Abadawi includes three indices following his concluding chapter that provide a great deal of raw data and textual parallels between the Quran and the wide range of sources he has employed. The value of his work is evidenced by the fact that it was it was a nomination for the 2014 British-Kuwait Friendship Society's Book Prize in Middle Eastern Studies.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network. Today we're speaking with Professor Imran al-Badawi about his work, the Quran, and the Aramaic Gospel traditions. Hello, Professor. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, and yourself? Uh, I'm doing well. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Um, before we actually delve into your work and get going, um, would you be so kind as to tell our listeners a little bit about your background in the in the field or just in general?
2: Sure, I'm happy to. Um, my academic work is very much informed by, shall we say, my biography or the sequence of events in my life. Um, I am kind of a racially mixed half uh, Egyptian and half South Asian, so half Arab, half, uh, half half Indian. And that really did kind of shape my worldview and um, caused me a great deal of uh, confusion and struggle when I was uh, younger and I think contributed to a great deal of, shall we say, richness and diversity and uh, open-mindedness and kind of my, my search for um, for the truth with, with a small T and later on kind of uh, the impetus behind my scholarship. I, I, I've lived and I was born and raised in, uh, partially in Malaysia. And then after that, in different countries in the Middle East, and in the West, namely in the United States. Um, so this this kind of search has this kind of bug within me has always uh, driven me to kind of read, uh, look, understand different cultures, languages, religions, and that really was uh, the beginning for me. And it actually it, it began in terms of books and texts. There was a my late father who died when I was young uh, left back a library, and in it there was a book called The Black Death. And it was uh, about the Lebanese civil war in the 70s and 80s. And I recall seeing pictures in there that were horrific and uh, learning and reading things that really kind of uh, destroyed my world, kind of the innocence. Um, and I realized then that something's not right. And I, I I felt that, you know, there's something within the, shall we say, c- cultural, political, even sometimes religious fabric of, of the region that I was living in that, uh, that, you know, tended to every couple of years, couple of decades kind of uh, blow up. And I wanted to understand this and I wanted to read more about it. So it got me reading. It got me really interested in the humanities. And I started even reading. I started reading more, um, uh, more religious works, Quran, even Bible. Um, and uh, eventually when I made it over to the US as a student, I did my bachelor's uh, in computer science with a double major in religion. And I remember also in my undergrad, actually joining almost every religious studies group that was possible, <laughs> including like the Sikh student uh, organization and the bahai group and uh, so it was really a, a period of intense exploration for me um i did a masters in temple university uh, in religious studies as well and finally a uh, i completed my phd um under the direction of uh, fred donner at the department of near eastern languages and civilizations at the university of chicago and my you know my time in chicago really uh I used it to to kind of, as, as, my, as my advisor would say, kind of bathe in the data. I read as much as I could, and I learned as many languages as I could um, because I, I was really inclined to do that. And uh, my kind of predilection, uh, kind of a passion for this language called Aramaic or Syriac, um, which really, it kind of began earlier as a hobby, which is kind of perhaps a little bit odd. It articulated itself very, very strongly in grad school, and I was reading a lot of... Um, you know, Ephraim and Jacob of Sarug, as well as um, uh, reading more—shall uh, we say—technical Islamic works um, on on on, on uh, exegesis and and history, and uh, and of course, on Quran as well. And so that's in a nutshell. That's kind of the both the impetus and um, the history of, of my academic background.
1: And v- very much so, what, what is at the heart of this work that we're about to delve into?
2: Oh, right, very much so. I realized uh, at, a shall I say, an early stage, not necessarily an early age, that um, this language called Aramaic and the dialect, especially of Syriac, um, there's something special about this. There's something special about this language. If I wanted to understand this region, kind of the history and the origins of uh, the Islamic societies and, uh, you know, the Arab peoples that somehow... Learning learning about this language, learning about the Syriac Christian churches, there's something special about it, because that was the lingua franca, that was the kind of culture that was dominant throughout the kind of late antique uh, Near East, uh, before Arabic and before Islam uh, became prominent. So it was very exciting for me.
1: Great. Now, as we start to to look at each uh, section of your work, um, I do want to note for our listeners that having read this, that there is a lot of information, and it starts right off the bat when we get into the introductory chapter on the sources and your method. Um, there's just a lot to unpack in each one of these sections. Uh, for instance, that during this chapter in particular, you spend a lot of time general introduction of you know what's going on in terms of the history of the study of the Quran in terms of its relationship. To other languages and how different authors treated it, particularly Western authors, I should say, mm-hmm.
2: uh, that's true. Well, one thing I try to do—the um, the first chapter—you're you, certainly justified. It's it's dense and it's got a lot of information, um, and it—you know—there was a question, you know, during the time of publication, how much I should truncate if I should take it out or leave it in, and so that was—believe <laughs> it or not—that first chapter is a revised version of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Needless to say, so my first book, this book, the Quran and the Aramaic Gospel Traditions, is a revised version of my dissertation, and uh, which was again a little, little bit more, shall we say, technical in, in in nature. But the you know just to back up for a second, the book itself is a literary and a historical analysis of 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 the Quran, of the text of the Arabic the Arabic text of the Quran. In light of this kind of Syriac and Christian Palestinian Aramaic text of the the Gospels, so what you know the kind of the current Gospels at that time in the seventh century, uh, or whenever, and uh, all this information, the purpose of it is to provide kind of a context for the beginnings of the Quran and um, uh, and also to situate it within now uh, what we call maybe late antiquity, as well as to kind of uh, as best as possible, seamlessly make a connection with the Syriac Christian literature, the kind of um, the dominant Christian churches uh, and their literature during that time. So all all of that had to somehow be articulated in that first chapter, and it's uh, you know there's there's really kind of no shortcut, as you know, or having read the book to to kind of to su- kind of summarize all that. Um, but I I did, of course, uh, do my best in the first chapter to kind of lay out the theory and the literature. Mm-hmm. And to, to pick a point that you just mentioned earlier, I also tried to include as best as possible the, shall we say, is, it kind of current Islamic scholarship on the issue as well. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there, there are a couple of uh, titles in Arabic and a couple in, in Farsi. Um, and as you can imagine, of course, in the Western Academy, uh, this, this study is a certainly more, more, more pronounced and articulated. Um, but I try my best, certainly, to include a number of scholars. You know, Nasr Hamid Abu Zayd, uh, Hisham Jaid, a couple of other folks who are interested in Quran and uh, kind of critical research and historical research on on the text. And they're all cited in there. So um, mm-hmm. hopefully, hopefully, folks who are really, really interested in Quran and its kind of its context and its dialogue with other, you know, kind of Jewish and Christian texts, they'll find lots of information there to 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 build upon.
1: Now, I, I think that's, you know, it, although I should say it's a good way, though, of giving the readers a lot of co- context of how large this study is, actually, not just your study, but what, what you're getting into in terms of the field and how far along it has come as well. So it's a very important, you know, to provide all this. Um, so I I think it's a very, it's really great. Um but is there anything else uh, in terms of you know the introduction that we need to unpack a little bit?
0: Yeah,
2: I mean there are always um, there there are a number of uh, uh, shall we say subjects or even kind of the theoretical framework um, that we can talk about, including perhaps this term called dogmatic rearticulation. Um, not not exactly something that ro- rolls off the, the tongue, uh, as my students remind me all the time. But one thing that I argue in the book is that. The Quran, in its Arabic text, rearticulates um, certain messages that we find in the uh, Aramaic translations of the Gospels and the Gospels in general, and you know even more broader than that, just you know the Bible. It's building, it's speaking to uh, an audience that knows the Bible, and in doing so, it's rearticulating a number of messages according to its own original. Uh, vision and that vision is is, is uh, concerned with strict monotheism that's another term that I use in there strict monotheism um, and that's that's a little bit of a that does disagree with some of the conventional wisdom namely that you know the Quran wa- was revealed to a uh, an audience of just kind of desert pagans that were worshiping uh, stones and you know kind of circumambulating the Kaaba naked and things of that nature um, that's not to say that this stuff didn't happen in general but uh, the my study through this book has kind of in my mind proven and uh, um, reinforced the the kind of thesis that the Quran functions in an environment uh, where Jews and Christians and uh, kind of the, the the dominant churches of the Middle East the Near East of, the, of that time, play a more prominent role than desert pagans. And as we know from the Sira, from kind of the kind of prophetic biography and early histories of, uh, of Islam, you know, the Quran is kind of, it's fundamentally, it's, it's an urban scripture. It's a scripture that comes to an urban environment, uh, which has tribal undertones. It, they're speaking in Arabic and uh, they're rearticulating articulating fundamentally uh, Jewish and Christian scripture because you're speaking fundamentally to an audience that is steeped in Jewish and Christian literature. So that's something that I make clear in that first chapter. Um, I, I do also kind of bring up, it's very important to me not to divorce my study from um, kind of classical Islamic tradition, as well as kind of contemporary Muslim and, and Arab kind of authors that are, that are talking about this stuff. So, there's some individuals like you know Ibn Umar al-Biqai who died in 808 uh, slash you know 1460, and of course the the uh, the giant Jalaluddin Suyuti who died in 911 slash 1505. Uh, uh, these individuals, of course, in their study of the Quran, uh, they they did of course have recourse to kind of looking at the Gospels and examining the kind of quote-unquote foreign vocabulary, which is a term, of course, that Arthur Jeffrey Arthur Jeffries uh, uses. It's a problematic term, of course. But, um, you know, there are basically, even, even within the scholarship, even within medieval classical Islamic scholarship, there are uh, intellectuals who know and understand and can appreciate and seek to explore and know further the kind of Jewish and Christian, uh, um, uh, shall we say, kind of... Uh, predecessors and antecedents to the kind of discourse we find in the Quran. The Quran is, in fact, it's coming. The Quran is a new edition of the Bible. It's coming to correct these kind of earlier mistakes um, that, uh, that the Jews and Christians have, have committed. And we can get into some details about that later on. But uh, you find in Al-Biqai and al some of that. And, of course, I, I cite a number of other uh, classical sources as well. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, and and real briefly also, so one thing that is also kind of um, the the chapter and really the book is kind of predicated on is something that you find, of course, in in English and in other kind of literary departments and disciplines is the idea of intertextual dialogue. Uh, The idea that kind of two texts can be talking to each other uh, more or less directly. And if not directly, then kind of mediated kind of just through through text. Um, This, again, can... it's it's kind of pushing the envelope as well, um, you know. Are, are 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 the Quran and you know Gospel X? Are they talking in you know through through in, through two people or through two texts or through uh, kind of a culture? Or uh, so these things, of course, some of it is speculative. But I I use this as kind of a um, literary method in the book. And it's not, that's not to say that it can't somehow be updated or, you know, tweaked in the future. Um, but that's also something. So the idea of intertextual dialogue is also really important.
1: Okay. Excellent. So then as we start moving through section by section, we begin with your uh, second chapter on prophetic tradition. Um, can you go ahead and, uh, you know, go ahead and talk about that for our listeners?
2: Yeah, sure. So the, you know, the impulse again for uh, kind of chapter two, um, again, actually, I'm going to back up for a second. So the, okay. the book itself is is seven chapters. And chapter one is kind of the, the literature and the method. And then chapter seven is kind of the kind of conclusions. And, and we will get there when we get there. And then mm-hmm. chapter two is really about history. And and then the subsequent chapters in the middle, kind of basically between chapters three and five are the literary analysis. So so now I'll jump back into chapter two. Okay. And uh, chapter two is really uh, it's it's the history behind this kind of literary analysis what so what what is the history what how much can we say about the history between the Quran and the Gospels in this Aramaic translation it's translated of course from Greek Um, and what I say in there of course is that you're dealing with a period of late antiquity and late antiquity is is again under Peter Brown the field or the discipline of late antiquity has uh, gained a great deal of prominence and again, I, I use that as a, as, a, as a method to kind of understand historically how can an a, an Arabic scripture in a, in an Arabian context uh, kind of react and kind of uh, co- correct, rearticulate, um, you know, protest, affirm earlier scripture in an Aramaic language, and that's that's really what Chapter Two is about. And um, the impetus behind that again is you know. I ask myself the question kind of rhetorically, why is it that everyone in the Quran who has a name or who is um, kind of uh, kind of a hero, a protagonist is a prophet, you know, Nebi or Rasul, kind of a prophet or a, a messenger. Uh, for the most part in the text, sometimes used, you know, synonymously completely uh, for the most part, you know, they're, they're identified with the same person or kind of two classes of people that kind of have very similar functions. And so I, I, I trace almost like the beginning of prophecy uh, in uh, in chapter two, almost you know from the beginning of of, uh, of, of recorded history, beginning with you know, Gilgamesh and things like that, moving through to uh, the Hebrew prophets, and then kind of the the, the idea of prophecy in uh, in uh, Christianity among the Church. Of course, prophets in the Church are they kind of they come after Jesus and they proclaim the message throughout the world, and then you get an idea of prophecy or even a prophetology in the Quran which blends and mixes these different uh, kinds of prophets and patriarchs and in some cases even rulers. And they come both from a kind of more should we say, na- native Semitic n- Near Eastern background as well as a kind of a Hellenistic background. Um, and, you know, there's probably some other things in there. I mentioned I, I make some reference to kind of ancient Egyptian understandings of prophecy and worship and things like that. But uh, I think that's important. It's important for us to realize that when the Quran talks about prophets, prophetology, um, that it's, that it's, it's, it's coming, it's, it's appearing as a trump card. And in order to do that, it's, you know, it speaks about the, identified of course, with uh, uh, Alexander the great. And it talks of course about the, you know, Moses, Jesus, and Noah, they're kind of, biblical prophets and patriarchs and it adds of course you know individuals like Hud and Salah typically understood to be arabian prophets now that's not necessarily the case there there are there are some who challenge that but you have already just in what i cited kind of three different cultural spheres uh, in which the quran functions and it's all talking about prophets as though you know they're all kind of they're they're united by this this message of and that message really is kind of islam it's kind of this this simple pure uh kind of monotheism and one, one very important thing in Chapter 2 is looking, kind of articulating the importance of the Arabic-speaking people in the late antique Near East, looking at, um, you know, sites that are today kind of under threat because of some of the problems in the region, like Palmyra and Hatra and uh, some of these other sites, looking at how um, Arabic-speaking phylarchs or kind of petty kings uh, were... Functioning under the umbrella of the Byzantine Empire or the Sasanian Empire and that this kind of Struggle between the Byzantines and the Sasanians really divided the Middle East in half and that uh, uh, The Arabs the Arabic speaking people the Arab tribes uh, In the the middle of this kind of conflict uh, played a significant role a very important role in kind of deciding winners and losers and that's something you know you don't really get when you think about Byzantines and and Sassanians. You think about Persians and Greeks. You think about th- them just kind of uh, going at it alone. But the Arabic speaking people before Islam played a, a tremendously important role. Um, they played an important role with uh, with, with regards to um, ruling the late antique Near East, especially in Mesopotamia, Greater Syria, and in Arabia itself. And they played an important role with respect to uh, the spread of Christianity. And one thing again that kind of you you get of course towards a conclusion, but also in, also in the beginning, this kind of historical framework is that the Arabic speaking populations were already significantly Christianized and also Christianizing. So you get things like Philip the Arab who in the third century, is the first you know kind of uh, first Christian Roman emperor who's uh, who's of Arab origin. Of course, that's very controversial, um, but I cite that along with uh, dozens of other you know kind of pieces of evidence. Looking at rulers, looking at um, uh, uh, whole, uh, re- religious men and women, um, and and really kind of putting the Quran and even the prophet, which it cites in there, Muhammad. Again, it's, it just says Muhammad, of course, doesn't say. Um, anyway, uh, so it, it, mm-hmm. it's situating both the scripture and the prophet in a world which is full of prophets and has uh, scriptures in different languages. And uh, one thing I'll mention in in this regard is that uh, the term Islam is a very important kind of term to, to kind of dwell upon for a while. And I I cite the case, of course, in in chapter two that Islam is philologically kind of again, if you go into the linguistics, the kind of the the, the the kind of the deep roots of the words, um, it's actually linguistically the same as this Syriac word. Namely, Nutha, which means kind of tradition or kind of um, you know tradition passed on from one person to another, and that's really interesting because now that not only puts the Quran and Muhammad in in context, but even Islam itself, which is kind of which becomes the name of the whole religion, and it argues that I argue that Islam was uh, the um, an attempt by an Arabic-speaking uh, prophet in Arabia to consolidate the different kind of uh, religious movements, including the churches. Now, again, I, so, some we're not totally clear on the details about this, but to really consolidate all these different religious movements and sects and confessional groups into one, you know, kind of religious umbrella, and that's kind of Islam. And you find uh, something I cite in in chapter two under kind of John of Ephesus and Babai the Great. Uh, these are names, of course, of kind of Christian patriarchs in the region who were near contemporaries or, or contemporaries of Muhammad that tried to do the same thing. Their, their principal language in which they were kind of, shall we say, publishing at the time was Syriac, not in Arabic. And they were trying desperately during this time when the Byzantines and the Sassanians are kind of tearing each other apart to try and save their church. Because the, church, the churches in the Middle East were, fra- were, were fracturing. And it was a very traumatic time just before Islam. Kind of, really kind of after the, after the 5th century, especially the late 6th, early 7th century. You start getting a lot of fracturing in the, in the Syriac Christian churches. And you get patriarchs trying to kind of pick up the pieces and put things back together again. And they don't succeed. And they use this term all the time, Manutha, which is basically kind of the tradition of the church, the tradition of the elders. But then you have this Arabic speaking group that is successful, not only in kind of unifying, you know, the churches, but really in unifying the whole region. Um, so that's that's something I articulate. And um, and I know other people have, have expressed some interest in the idea. But um, and in a nutshell, I think that's that's really what's important.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so then after setting the stage with that and then you said, um in the next, uh, four chapters, correct? Chapters three through six, right. That you then delve into kind of the, the literary aspect.
2: Uh, right. That is correct.
1: Okay. So do you want to go ahead and start leading us through that, uh, beginning with the, the third chapter, the, uh, on profits? Sure. Um,
2: so yeah, what I do with the, with the third chapter is I, of course, it's really important. I try to do this in the book, that every chapter kind of logically goes from one to the other because it's, because it's so dense and because there's a lot of analysis involved, I want the reader to at least kind of flow from one subject to the other. So the the chapter two kind of the historical framework on kind of prophetic tradition, um, leads into this, this, uh, chapter three on the prophets and what I call their righteous entourage. Um, and this, this chapter really is about, uh, it's about kind of the, the prophets and the good guys. So who are the, who are the good guys in this kind of universal, this this narrative on you know, universal linear history in the Quran. And, um, so, you know, there, there are a couple of things that I could say. Um, you find in the Quran, the Quran is not a text and, you know, you find of course within Islam through the hadith and other kind of traditions, uh, the religion and scripture are against kind of, um, tribal and genealogical, uh, groupings. And, you know, there's, it's not, uh, does not believe in kind of, uh, kind of racial superiority or, you know, kind of one tribe being great than the other. So you don't really find genealogies like you do in, in the Bible, like you'd find, for example, in the gospel of Luke, or you'd find in the, you know, the books of Moses, but you do find in, in the Quran kind of sequence of prophets and you find them, you know, and, numbers who are Stuart, Stuart 21 20 25 and um, where you get kind of lists of prophets and that's significant because it's it's kind of this uh prophetic ge- it's a kind of a prophetic genealogy it's not biological and that's really kind of the the beginning uh, kind of the foundation of, of the chapter otherwise there are, there are a number there are a number of of course uh, passages that are really important that perhaps hitherto um, people did not really know about Uh, as far as the Quran is concerned. So the dialogue between the Quran and the kind of Aramaic translations of of the Gospels um, makes important, uh, for example, the discussion of like, you know, the Beatitudes. Blessed are, you know, the peacemakers, blessed are and blessed are, so on and so forth. Um, This is something that's significant to the Quran. And, uh, you know, I I go through that in detail. And uh, also with little surprise, you find the Lord's Prayer Lord's prayer is kind of this, um, almost the equivalent of like, um, Surah one in the Quran, where it's kind of this, uh, all, all purpose supplication to the Lord. And, um, it's, it's very important within the Quran as well. And it, it repeats itself in the other chapters, um, as well. You find also within the chapter, you have kind of this, um, if we can talk about a Quranic like an uh, ethics, a, uh, an ethics of the Quran, um, I argue. I argue in chapter three that the ethics of the Quran are pretty much uh, they they're, they're adjacent or they overlap with the ethics of uh, the Gospels, especially the Synoptic Gospels—Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, you know, with respect to kind of you know the, the poor and um, you know giving good news, um, talking about you know servants and even sons of God, and how the Quran re-articulates that um you know with respect to also kind of giving giving charity and with repentance all of these kind of ethical the ethical framework of the Quran which i think you know the reader would take for granted are in very strong dialogue with um you know go- gospel passages uh especially in the, in the synoptic gospels um so i mean that's that's kind of In a nutshell, you know, you you get you get a little bit of you know the importance of the Beatitudes and Lord's Prayer and kind of an ethic an ethical framework which the Quran really does share with the gospels.
1: Great. And then um do you is there anything else that you wanted to mention or do you wanna go ahead and start talking about the next chapter on the evils of the clergy?
2: Well, you know, just before we get there, you're reminding me I uh there's something also um a number of the relationships that I uh, find between uh, the Quran and the Gospels uh, in in Arabic are are in the content, that is to say, the substance, but also in 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 expression. So you find, for example, like rhyme schemes and um, you know little things of that nature. Also, they articulate themselves as well, um, and that's that's important too because you have you have within the Gospels certain you know like for example like within within the beatitudes you get you'll get i'm sorry within the lord's prayer you'll get a, a rhyme um and uh you know obviously the quran is in large part kind of this rhymed prose which reflects the kind of prophetic speech of of the arabian uh sphere but that's also important for us to understand um one of the arguments made uh about kind of Arabic culture and the Arabs, pre-modern Arabia, um, pre-Islamic Arabia is that, you know, their pride was in poetry and kind of things of that nature. But that was also very, very important to the Syriac churches. And it's very, you find that also within, uh, within parts of uh, the gospels. And you certainly find it within the Syriac Christian literature. So that's just a little kind of nugget that's, uh, that's included as well.
1: Okay. Um, Kind of then a quick follow-up. So stating that there's the similarity in sort of a rhyme structure uh, similarity in maybe form as well. Uh, in that, I mean, something of, you know, you would have a, B, C, B, A, uh, pat- patterns. That's some sort of literary par- pattern, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Right. You're absolutely right. So you get, um, uh, you get, you get kind of this, uh, rhyming pattern. You also get kind of p- p- patterns with stanzas and with, uh, yep. uh, with pauses, with, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the, 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 the chorus speaking, um, that those, I mean, the, now we're kind of all over the place, but that, that articulates itself yeah. in this chapter and other chapters as well. And it's I think it's very, very significant. Um, and so one thing, for example, like if you look at, I'll give you know, kind of the listeners an example. If you read Matthew, let's say chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, or Luke 11, 2 through 4, and then you read um, Quran 1, you know, which is seven verses, um, there's already there's – already a uh, kind of a couple of published studies on, uh, you know, Spurl. Last name Spurl, who um, did a study on forms of, you know, Surah One and the Lord's Prayer and this Babylonian prayer. Uh, so it's it's not merely a relationship between an Arabic scripture and a Syriac scripture, but it even goes earlier. And even within that, you can see, of course, a sequence of how the prayer is, of course, articulated and uh, you know what comes first. What comes one, two, three, four, five and it does it does follow so again something you it's just it's in the text it's latent in the text it's pretty obvious but it's just something that as a reader you don't you take for granted unless you, you unless you go through
1: and read both at the same time and things of that nature hard to actually see those without actually looking at them as you said at the same time
2: absolutely absolutely
1: yeah wonderful um so let's go ahead then and move forward to the next chapter then on evils of the clergy and tell tell our listeners what you were doing in this chapter sure
2: so again, um, this is something that I, I myself was surprised, um, you know, as a grad student and later on as a, as a kind of a young academic and researcher to to realize that when the when the Quran is condemning um, those who it condemns in the text, it tends to do so in the context, in a context that is very different than what we read in again the Hadith and the Sirah and the kind of the the prophetic traditions and and bio, biographical and historical literature of Islamic, uh, of, of of the Islamic tradition, kind of which which comes about later on, and you know one example of this is you know like when the Quran uses wail wailun lil you know wailun kind of woe unto the liars woe unto you know the cheaters woe on, who are these people, um, you know according to to kind of the Islamic later Islamic tradition it's kind of again it's the desert pagans who are uh, doing all sorts of things, and there's it's it's not substantiated by the text itself. It's not substantiated by the Quran, but it's substantiated by later by later, um, you know, uh, shall we say, traditions. So, what I find in my research and in this chapter, the evils of the clergy is that the bad guys are uh, somehow identified with or associated with um, religious men, and. You know, I was when I when I when I first I I published an article on this before I actually published the book. I was a little bit apprehensive, um, but I think that, you know, there's now new literature coming out, which kind of reinforces this idea. So anyway, to get to get more to the chapter itself, the this is this is the chapter really about the bad guys who are the bad guys. And the bad guys are um, they, again, belong to this kind of broader Jewish Christian context. And they have a, a leading role to play um, when it comes to dispensing with the wealth of uh, widows and orphans, as well as kind of, you know, kind of guiding the community or, you know, the leading the community. And this, of course, leads irrevocably to the discussion of widows and orphans, which is which is extremely important. And... Um, when you have you have a chapter in the in the Quran, chapter four, nisa called the women. And one thing I do in in the book is to say, yeah, well, we're talking about women here, but we're really talking about widows. Um, or most important, you know, at the forefront of women are the widows, and uh, you know, widows are again according to kind of this uh, Semitic um, Arabic kind of uh, cultural sphere. Uh, if he, if if the father dies, then the his if, shall we, I'm, me, let me say this again. So if, if the husband dies, then his wife is a widow and she is a mother of an orphan. And uh, if you look at the Quran when it's basically condemning uh, those who eat, who devour the uh, kind of wealth and property of orphans, it's precisely the language and the context that you'd find in the Gospels. I mean, you find it also under parts of Exodus and, and, or, and you know, the earlier works in the Hebrew Bible that also place a great deal of importance on taking care of the orphan and speaking at, you know, and and some liked about widows, but you don't find anything like this. The relationship, especially with widows and orphans, um, is related directly to condemning the clergy. And uh, again, this is, that's not at all obvious by reading the text, Um, but this is actually, there's a, there's a later work, which, which has come out. Of course, this, my book has come out two years ago since then, um, around the same time, this book by Holger Zellenton on the Quran's legal culture. And, uh, he, he in my opinion, he makes kind of the, he's working with the same, uh, kind of set of assumptions and makes very similar conclusions. Namely that, you know, you have, uh, you have the Quran, uh, articulating a certain kind of Jewish Christian, um, uh, legal sensibilities. And when I say Jewish-Christian here, I'm not talking about these old groups cited by the Christian fathers like the El Kaseites and not that. But I mean kind of a, mm-hmm. uh, kind of Jewish-leaning Christians in the Middle East. And I think that's really important, especially when we talk about uh, widow, widows and orphans. And this discussion of widows and orphans, uh, again, again to my surprise, leads to a discussion on jihad fi Allah, kind of jihad in the way of God. Um, because in the Gospels you have, of course, uh, you know, in in the way of Christ, in the way of Jesus as well, and it's it's kind of this long and in some cases, you know, it's it's a little bit complex, but it's all inter it's all interwoven. The condemnation of the clergy um, because they are um, devouring the wealth of of, of orphans, um, mistreating, shall we say, their wives. And, um, and this, you know, the Quran puts forth, uh, kind of the struggle in, in the way of God as this kind of social mechanism to, to rectify this wrong. And this adds a great deal of context because we're not just talking about warfare here. We're also talking about, um, uh, you know, kind of so- social welfare, shall we say. Um, also in, in the chapter, you know, uh, kind of beside that whole narrative that I just described is a condemnation of the church itself. Um, And this is, uh, let me see if I can actually, if I can look this up, I I kind of forget. Um, There is in Surah 57, a condemnation of uh, the early church. And this is, of course, where it talks about uh, this term Rahbaniyah. Rahbaniyah, of course, being, you'll get a number of translations, which I, of course, uh, look as. I, I talk about the clergy, or you can even you can even say church, uh, but that would be a stretch. But I argue in this chapter that the Quran's condemnation in Surah fifty-seven uh, has to do with the early church, prior to the this Council of Jerusalem, which is very early in the year fifty or so, um, where the early church under uh, Saint Paul or uh, Saul of Tarsus moved the church away from its Jewish um, uh, kind of uh, origins, um, kind of be- beating uh, Simon Peter at the, at the council. And so, you know, you get really in the first and second centuries, the church moving away from Jerusalem, moving to Antioch, moving elsewhere in the Mediterranean, and becoming more and more uh, not only Hellenized, but of course kind of uh, serving uh, the, the Gentile population. And that the Quran, again objects to this because the Quran reflects this Jewish Christian sensibility that, you know, the, the, the earliest church, um, you know, the one that kind of, uh, Jesus came to, uh, proclaim and, you know, his, uh, you know, un- under, Peter was kind of founded as the rock. That church has been overturned. That church that kept kind of kept the laws, uh, has been overturned by Paul and this later church in, in Antioch. So again, that doesn't, it's not obvious at all in the text, something that I argue. And um, again, over, I, I've not seen any sort of kind of rebuttal of this idea. I've actually seen a couple of, um, couple of scholars pick up on it. And it's something that I've, I've published about and uh, it relates to actually one of my products, which I'll tell you about uh, later on.
1: Excellent. Wonderful. So then transitioning then from talking about the evils of the clergy and especially that last point then. So, how does that then relate to what you do in the next chapter about the divine realm?
2: Right. So, um, so basically you have chapter three, which is good guys and chapter four, which is bad guys. And then chapters, chapter five is really kind of about God. And, um, in this chapter, what's really important is kind of religious imagery and terminology, because how one conceives of the divine and what I call the divine realm influences directly the way they pray the way they you know kind of um describe a god the way they uh, the terms they use to name god and things of that nature so you'll find in this chapter a great deal of kind of emphasis on terminology and uh imagery parables um uh things of that nature uh so s- s- some of those some of these themes of course some of these ideas topoi and uh uh, uh words are kind of perennial, they're universal to all religions. Things like uh, the concept of a word, the concept of light, uh, but you also get things like um, the keys, like the keys to the kingdom of God, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. These are very, very important to both the the Gospels as well as the Quran. And by, of course, reading reading both in their kind of uh, Middle Eastern, shall we say, language, reading Quran and it's in, in Arabic, reading the, uh, the Gospels in in, uh, in Syriac Then the discussion Talking about words um, And talking about a light Or the lamplight um, And talking about these keys um, the, the Again, the philological relationship The kind of linguistic relationship Between the terms and the phrases I argue is very strong uh, I mean, just on the surface The frequency of, you know uh, A term like, for example Malakut <laughs> well samawati wal-Ard um, or the idea of malakut, um, the kind of kingdom, malakuta, uh, in, you know, other, other, other terms. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a bit of a blank because, of course, it's, it's, it's been a while. But, sure. you, of course, there, there, there are a number of terms. They're not just words that are tremendously significant to this chapter. Um, to, to speak a little bit more, I guess, um, about the content, about the meat of the chapter, it's in, in this chapter, you really get, uh, it's, it's almost trying to understand again, what is, what is a shared theology between gospel and the Quran? You know, this chapter I feel um, articulates that. Um, I hope, I hope clearly, you know, there are things that are important, like, um, the parable of the mustard seed and the imagery of God's throne. These are things which we take for granted whenever we read the text. I mean, you know, you know, myself growing up as as a Muslim and reading the Quran, like okay, God's throne, fine. You know, well, why isn't it something else? You know, why isn't uh, God sitting on a couch, or why isn't He riding a, a horse? You know, it's a throne, and that you know feeds directly into a discussion with, uh, for example, like Matthew five. I, I recall that, and and other places. Um. So, well, yeah. There's there's one one thing I'll mention again. So again, even within the Quran, there are some. Passages, some sort of signature passages, like the lamplight verse, um, um, or um, the al Kursi, kind of the throne verse. Uh, the, the so you you you, know, you have you have those passages which are uh, in, in dialogue, and in this case, actually with the Gospel of John, when they, you know, when, when John opens, saying you know, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not in the opening, but when he says basically when Christ says, "I'm I'm the light of the world" and things of that nature. And also in the opening of John, that's what I wanted to say earlier, uh, when he says, of course, you know, in the beginning was Word, and the Word was God, and things of that nature, and the Word was God. You know, the Quran knows Christology through and through. It knows the stuff. I mean, again, we speak of, a, of the Quran knowing. I'm in that case. I'm I'm using Daniel Madigan's uh, thesis to to my aid, but the Quran as a text is uh, a tremendously knowledgeable about the theological doctrines that it is refuting. That makes perfect sense. So whilst, you know, again, a reader kind of uh, reading the Quran, they would never realize on the surface of things that, oh, wow, this is talking about John 1-1, and this is talking about John, you know, so on and so forth. That's what the Quran is doing. It's, it's, it's directly responding to the Gospels um, uh, to refute it. So th- these are these are some important these are some important uh, historical dimensions to very important Quranic verses um, like like the throne verse for example and um,
0: yeah
1: excellent um, is there you know because you were talking about the similarities with so many different things in here was there something that when you were writing that maybe stuck out a little bit to you
2: um I guess I mean you know for me it's just uh, <laughs> everything it just for me or or holistically well what 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 really did for me what made things for me it it made it made things click for me is that uh knowing why for example such such verses are so important you know what makes the lamplight verse important Uh, uh, and what makes the throne verse so important is it merely because it's beautiful is it merely because it's aesthetically, or um, uh, you know, kind of should we say even uh, poetically beautiful? I mean, honestly, I mean, I read the Quran all the time. I think the whole thing is beautiful, but it's got to be more than that. Uh, so I think that it 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 provides some uh, uh, reason and some uh, uh, you know it, it, some basis for why these verses are important. Perhaps even the earliest audience of the Quran, when they were reading these verses, realized, oh my goodness, you know, this, 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 uh, this is a rebuttal of our theology, which we believed for a generation or a couple of generations. And, and so now we need to kind of rectify this by, you know, reciting this verse. And, uh, so it gives, it gives it more historical importance, you know, fleshed out in evidence and in analysis rather than in just kind of speculation and, uh, kind of aesthetics which is important but like I said this that's that's what for me it kind of made it all click.
1: Excellent. And then kind of then getting ready to close this section this uh these four chapters on, you know, liter the literary element we then delve into um divine judgment and the apocalypse in the sixth chapter.
2: Right. Yeah, so this chapter for me chapter 6 was the most exciting. uh, uh for me I enjoyed writing it the most and it was uh, it's a substantial chapter, and it actually, I, I it came out all you know uh, naturally and uh, quite quickly. Um, there's a reason for that, and that's as I show in the in the later chapter that uh, the dialogue between, should we say, the the, the overarching theme that uh, is 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 identical, shall we say, between Quran and Gospels, really, is the idea of the kind of the, the day of judgment and the apocalypse. And even later on, kind of the, you know, the heaven and hell scenes. In every stage, um, what I do in this chapter is to show that at every stage, uh, how both texts reflect kind of the same cosmology and um, uh, eschatology. So how, how, how the Quran and the Gospels share the same assumptions and kind of knowledge even about kind of what's earth, what's sky, know what is above, what's below, what's hellfire, what is paradise, what's the garden. It shares the the same world, um, and it also shares um, the eschatology. You know what's going to happen first is you know is the, does does the sky is the sky ripped asunder or does the earth you know the quake? Which one comes first? That sequence is very important, and that sequence is preserved in both texts. Um, so. So just, just to kind of express what that sequence is, you get, um, I argue in the text, you know, kind of the earth, you get the earthquakes and then you get the heavens um, getting getting split. Uh, and then I show that there's a heavenly army, an army of angels that kind of attacks the earth and that God and the angels descend on the clouds. Now, of course, that's that's a Quranic articulation or the re articulation of what happens in the Gospels, because in the Gospels, of course, um, you know, with all the angels and the sounding of the trumpets and things of that nature, it's, it's, it's Christ that descends and not God. So one very, very important kind of dogmatic rearticulation is that Christ has been stricken from the record and has been replaced with God. And I go through some kind of pains to show this, because to me it's both simple but really, really important at the same time. You know, uh, it's not, in my opinion being to, uh, it it doesn't kind of contradict or conflict with anything that the Quran puts forth. Um, but it does, of course, you know, it does, it does kind of uh, demonstrate, you know, push the envelope further with the thesis that I'm making that the, you know, the Quran is speaking to this earlier scripture. It's speaking to the gospels and it's correcting it, um. So that's one thing. You get the sequence, which is really important. So the image is really important. I, of course, I provide that picture by von Steinel. I wanted my readers to have something to look at. Um, so, of course, the reader can't see it, so maybe they can buy the book. Um, there's also,
1: Most definitely.
2: A <laughs> <laughs> little plug. Um, there's also what's really important, again, is there are uh, passages that, especially two passages that are in very strong dialogue with one another. Which again, on the surface of it, one wouldn't really uh, see. But having you know, examining both texts and looking at the literature and looking at uh, examining the language, if you read Matthew twenty-five towards the end, the scene with kind of the the you know the sheep and the lamb, and uh, I'm sorry, the uh, the sheep and the uh, and the goats. Uh, And then you read Quran thirty-nine again towards the end of that chapter. I mean, you are talking about the exact same scene. Um, and, you know, Surah 39 is a Zumar, the multitudes. The multitudes are basically the, you know all the nations uh, of human beings being judged on the Day of Judgment. And that's, uh, again, in this narrative between Matthew 25 and Quran 39. Uh, in, in Quran 39, Christ's name has been stricken from the record and you, of course, have God, who's, you know, on the throne and there are angels going around him and so on and so forth. Again, because the Quran is refuting this kind of Christocentric or kind of uh, Christological understanding, refuting again throughout the the Quran, of course, is against the Incarnation and against the Trinity, and that it it fits perfectly. Um, That scene of judgment, the um, shall I say the most detailed, demonstrative, um, future historical, so we say eschatological uh, image of the, the Day of Judgment is in Surah 39, and it's a direct dialogue with Matthew 25 the other kind of a final kind of really, really big scene, um, is, where there's strong dialogue is Luke 16 and Quran seven. Uh, the, the passage in Quran and Quran seven is, is brief. Um, but Luke 16, of course, is more, a little bit more substantial information that that's of course the scene with, uh, in Luke 16 with Abraham and, and Lazarus kind of, you know, um, Lazarus has now gone to paradise and, uh, there, he, people in hellfire are asking him for water, and he doesn't give it, and so on, something of that nature. Uh, and in Quran seven, you get a rearticulation of this. And in each case, of course, with the rearticulation, um, the Quranic the Quranic uh, uh, narrative is always shorter, and it's always kind of more of a summary, the summary of the lesson. What we say in Arabic, the Ibra the lesson. And that again, that fits as well. Um, so I mean, those those are just um, like I said, it was quite enjoyable to write that chapter, and those are the kind of the important points that, uh, you know, again, if, if you read it, it really is, I, I hope that the reader will find this, this uh,
1: chapter enjoyable. Great. And then, uh, moving on finally to chapter seven, the conclusion, the data with your data analysis. Um, so let's go ahead and start that.
2: Uh, sure. So, I mean, I, I, I think that perhaps having a, um, a, a, a chapter that's kind of entitled, you know, Data analysis and conclusion for such a text is a little bit clunky and maybe uh, maybe a little bit out of place. I I still felt that this chapter is important to have, even you know, it's a, it's the shortest chapter, but I did want to bring some of my kind of technical expertise and uh, you know kind of looking at the uh, you know uh, lo- looking at looking at the terms and uh, charting the relationships, documenting them in uh, in bar graphs and in pie charts and things of this nature. That that's important. Um, and this is just kind of something you know a comment on the side tangentially I mean I, we it's, it's important to to, to, to let our, our readers know not just through kind of text but also through images and pictures and so I mean I, I believe that so in this that's what this chapter is all about and um, you know a couple of things I could say about it is that I argue and I mean I kind of I, I conclude and I show statistically with kind of the numbers of Words, phrases, passages—you know, complete clauses—you know, large and small passages that there is—you know—there is a there is a strong dialogue between the Quran and the Aramaic Gospels, and you know, and here's here's the evidence, and I know I I of course have the bar graphs that uh, show, for example, um, you know what chapters in the Gospels are, uh, you know, what what is the frequency of relationships with respect to chapters. Anyway, so you, you can see them going up and down and stuff, stuff of that nature. One thing that, that is demonstrated is that the, apoc- the apocalyptic content in the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are most significant for kind of this dialogue with the Quran, which is not surprising because the Quran is fundamentally concerned with the day of judgment and especially the kind of so-called meccan surahs. Um, the, opening, the opening verses are, you know, uh, full of kind of, um, you know, and things of that nature—the kind of uh, swearing statements with the wow the of uh, of, uh, of swearing. Um, so, I again, I'm just kind of, I'm just demonstrating that now in numbers and in graphs and things of that nature. Uh, with respect to this dialogue also, and in, in the in the Quran, the I show that the kind of the textual, this intertextual dialogue, this conversation going on between uh, the Gospels and the Quran takes place throughout the whole Quran. You know, basically through all all the chapters, all 114 chapters. um, I discuss maybe most of them, not all of them, but uh, that's really important because another thing that we in the academy have inherited um, from, shall we say, uh, medieval classical Islamic scholarship, is the idea of Meccan surahs and Medinan surahs. Now, there's certainly within the Quran, this is, again, this is something that's very controversial within Quranic studies currently, you know, for the past decade or so, uh, you know, is this Meccan phase and Medinan phase. But anyway, without getting into so much detail, according to my research, the the Meccan and Medinan surahs are both in dialogue with, with the Gospels. So there's not. It's not like you see, you know, kind of a dominance in one uh, as opposed to the other. And what does that say? You know, I'm. I didn't. I'm not totally sure. I didn't kind of take the, the conclusion as far as it can go. Um, I do. I do, of course, um, articulate what I just said earlier that uh, the opening, the opening verses of the the so-called Meccan suras are really, really important um, to understand. Again, this this dialogue. Um. It, Another thing that's important again is the prominence of the Gospel of Matthew. Most of the literary relationships between Quran and, and Bible or Quran and the Gospels is uh, shall we say, mediated somehow through Gospel of the Gospel of Matthew. Again, that's not it's not very surprising from a scholarly point of view because the Gospel of Matthew was it's the largest gospel, it was the it's the gospel that comes first, it's the gospel that was most well known according to Bart Ehrman and other specialists and kind of the Late antique world, so uh, it, that's not making any sort of direct uh, linear relationship between Matthew and the Quran. Not at all. It's just to say that you know the, the most commonly known gospel uh, was the most commonly known gospel, and one of the evidence you know one evidence of that is that the Quran cites it has the strongest relationship with uh, with that gospel as opposed to the others. Um, another thing, and this is you know this is a little bit pushing the envelope, of course, talking about the authorship of the Quran and or the the, the committee. Again, we're according to the, to, to the traditional narrative, you have, of course, a committee by headed by Zayd ibn Thabit and others. Um, initially under the Caliph Abu Bakr, then Umar, uh, and of course culminating in Uthman, uh, where kind of the Quran is collected. And, you know, the Quran did have to somehow be collected, again, orally, textually. It's highly controversial and uh, somewhat speculative. But uh, I think it's justified, you know, at the conclusion of, of my research, that, you know, we should have a broader understanding and appreciation for what is Arabic, uh, what is, you know, uh, even, even, shall we say, Islamic in this context, in the context of, uh, you know, let's say 7th century Arabia. I also uh, expressed that there's, uh, there's an importance uh, for the city of, uh, the vicinity of Jerusalem, shall we say. Uh, that's again. That's a little bit complicated. You have to kind of read read the text. So, Ed, just just some kind of concluding remarks that you know uh, the the Arabic pre-Islamic context was one that was steeped in Jewish and Christian scripture and you know kind of uh, homiletics, uh, religious piety, and that uh, that you can detect. And I'm not alone now in saying this, that you know, there's a kind of Jewish-leaning Christians uh, in the vicinity as well. And that in the, ex- in, the, in, the, in the text of the Quran itself, the way that the Quran, the choice of words and the imagery uh, reflects that kind of, uh, reflects that, uh, that, that imagery in that world, in that milieu. Um, and so, again, that's, this is to kind of refute the whole kind of desert pagans thesis and that uh, the, the, the audience is a lot more sophisticated and uh, belongs to a more uh, orthodox, with a small orthodox kind of uh, confessional sectarian identity. You know, there are uh, probably more Christian Arabs in, the, in, in, in this milieu than uh, we've admitted in the past. And that, it, uh, that this actually makes the message of the Quran even more forceful, and it makes a lot more sense and uh this is i consider my book to function in kind of a as as one of many uh in contemporary studies on the quran that are and it gives a lot of momentum to these ideas the idea that you know there's a, the quran is functioning in a late antique kind of jewish Christ, jewish slash christian uh uh you know world and uh, you know what what's really innovative about it is that it's in arabic and that it's it's its message is so forceful and it was so successful and in, and I think that I think that you know it makes it makes better sense when we you know when we uh, when we examine its historical context rather than just take what we you know rather than take the uh, biographical literature which comes later on.
1: And I think that your work definitely is a valuable contribution to the field in that regard as well. Um, so I would definitely you know highly recommend that readers interested in this need to go and check it out as soon as they possibly can.
2: Thank you. That's good. Yeah, I, I agree.
1: Um, we've taken a lot of your time, but um, you did actually, I'd, I'd love to know about any future projects that you might be working on. You did actually kind of mention something earlier. So I'd love it if you uh, gave us more of your time and kind of, you know, told us what you have uh, on the horizon.
2: Sure. It's my pleasure. Of course, as uh, like all academics, you know, I get the, uh, I get to say I'm working on three or four projects at one time. (laughs) That's just kind of a wishful thinking. It's our to-do list, basically. Um, So I have uh, a couple of, shall we say, you know, uh, kind of treatises or monographs in the work, one of which actually develops uh, the idea, again, of this kind of condemnation of the church. um, And that's really looking at the origin of, uh, shall we say, Islamic law and church canon law. And this, you know, I I've published already one article on this, and you know, I kind of gauged kind of what the interest and in criticism is of this work, um, and I, I feel that you know I can I can I have more to say about it, uh, you know, and kind of namely looking at looking at hadith really, uh, which begins in the late eighth and then of course early ninth century, of course after shafii shafi and even afterwards, uh, the prominence of hadith becomes uh, in, in in the ninth century. Uh, Maybe maybe it's the most you know epistemologically the most important uh, source of religious knowledge and and uh, and law. So to to look, to look to kind of consider and appreciate uh, these kind of should we say Islamic canons or to think of an Islamic canon law. Uh, this is this is an idea I'm kind of experimenting with, um, but there are of course relationships that uh, historically again and textually kind of again literary and historical. Uh, relationships between that and uh, church canon, uh, the church canons, and especially there's uh, some stuff in the late seventh century, uh, which uh, which which I'm using as kind of a foundation. That's one project. There's another project which uh, has actually is uh, far removed in time, and that's namely on the subject of kind of uh, Arab liberalism and uh, kind of where are the Arab liberals. This is not. You know, it, it may sound like something, like a hobby or some sort of interest I have on the side, but for me, it's very, very much uh, part and parcel of you know my my interest in you know Quran and uh, Eastern Christian, Syriac Christian uh, literature, because uh, I recall when I was, of course, writing my first book, in in my first chapter, uh, I I cite and I've I've read, of course, a great deal uh, about kind of the progressive um, enlightenment and kind of Islamic modernist uh, schools of thought and how they interpret the text, how they historicize the Quran. And that got me on, you know, that got me interested in, again, this kind of more contemporary understanding of what the, what, what uh, Islamic tradition uh, is and how, you know, one, uh, what are the limits for being a citizen, a Muslim, and things of that nature, uh, and especially, of course, in the, in, the Arab, in the Arab context. And that takes me all the way, it's almost like full circle, um, takes me all the way back to that uh, book I read when I was uh, a teenager uh, in my father's library, uh, a book called The Black Death about the Lebanese Civil War. Um, for me, these things are all related to one another. And again, one thing that I appreciate very much, and I, I look, you know, I see as my example, people like Nasser Ahmed Abu Zaid and Aziz Al-Azmi, people who are interested in both modernity and antiquity. And I, I, you know, I both, uh, I plan to do that, and I aspire, I aspire to, you know, I look at them as, as role models. And finally, um, I have, uh, I'm actually already working on a co-authored, like it's a, more of a, a textbook on the classical Middle East, and um, really looking at the Middle East from let's say 600 till about 1600. And um, I'm, I'm writing the initial chapters of this book uh, currently, and I think that book should be out. Maybe next year. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm also working on a on a, on a conference uh, here in Houston, um, kind of uh, at Rice University, co-sponsored by University of Houston. Um, on on the Quran, the proceeds of that
1: will go into a book as well. So there's, there's plenty of things to do. Excellent. It sounds like you're very busy, and we definitely look forward to uh, seeing more from you in the future. And hopefully, you'll join us in the future when uh, your next works start coming out.
2: Uh, It would be my pleasure. And yeah, thank you very much for, uh, for giving me your time as well.
1: No, thank you for, uh, you know, being with us and for talking, talking through your work for our listeners. And this was a great pleasure. So thank you very much. My pleasure.
0: All right. Have a good day, Professor. You too. Take care. Thank you for joining us as we spoke with Professor Imran Al-Badawi about his book, the Qur'an and the Aramaic Gospel tradition. Please be sure to stop back in a few weeks to check out another new interview here in the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network. Be sure also to check out one of our many other channels. Thank you for joining us.